Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Nick Olick, Duke Plastic Surgery residents with The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. Today, we are continuing our Flapcast series to discuss gluteal flaps. We are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Tay Chong, who will be visiting us at Duke very soon as an instructor for the Duke Flap course, which brings together students, residents, and faculty from all over the country for a series of lectures and expert flap dissections. Dr. Tay Chong attended the University of Virginia for medical school and general surgery residency before completing plastic surgery residency at the University of Pittsburgh. He also has a fellowship in transplantation and infectious disease from UVA. Dr. Chong returned to my hometown of Richmond, Virginia in 2021 and is now the chief of the Division of Plastic Surgery at Virginia Commonwealth University. He is the past president of the Mountain West Society of Plastic Surgeons and is a member of several national societies, including the American Council of Academic Plastic Surgeons, the American Society of Reconstructive Microsurgeons, and the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. Dr. Chong is a head-to-toe reconstructive surgeon with particular interest in breast reconstruction and lymphedema surgery. Thank you, Dr. Chong, for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Really looking forward to this. All right, so we're going to be discussing gluteal flaps today. Um, and, you know, as we all know, these have many different applications in plastic surgery. Um, we can use these as pre-flaps, pedicle flaps for a variety of different indications. Um, to start out, Dr. Chong, in kind of a big picture view, can you tell us uh, some of your thoughts about the gluteal flaps? And in your practice, what are the most uh, common reasons or indications you're using these for? Well, the, the gluteal flaps, um, they're extremely versatile. And, and, and as you mentioned, you can use them as pedicle flaps and free flaps. What I'm using them mostly for is for breast reconstruction, but I think most plastic surgeons in practice will use it for coverage of sacral pressure sores, for ischial pressure sores. Um, and for these, these are the go-to flaps, right? And it's because they have a very reliable anatomy, very robust blood supply, and technically they're fairly um, straightforward. Now, if you want to make it a little bit more complicated, you can use them as perforator flaps versus large fasciocutaneous flaps. Um, and if you make them simply perforator flaps, you can cover, you get a lot more mo movement and play on the flap itself and you can cover larger de or further defects. Um, and so you can, um, for instance, one of the hardest areas to cover is the lower lumbar area, if you have a, if you have a large defect there. And you can take an S-gap flap and, and if you base it laterally enough, you can actually move it in and cover large lumbar defects. That makes it a little bit more complicated, but it gives you a lot more um, versatility in how you can position that flap. And if you want to take it a little bit more advanced, you can try and turn these into free flaps for, for breast reconstruction. And, you know, a lot of people malign the S-gap, and I think unjustly, because uh, I, I think that if they, they understood the anatomy just a little bit better and were quicker to use um, um, vein grafts or the deep inferior epigastric uh, pedicle, as a, as a graft, they would find it's a lot more technically feasible than it's been originally described. But so to summarize, I use it a lot for, mostly for breast reconstruction, but they can be used for lower lumbar coverage and um, sacral and ischial pressure sore reconstruction. In terms of uh, breast reconstruction, um, kind of taking it from the beginning, who do you see as an ideal candidate for an SCAP flap? Is this your go-to kind of secondary option if the deep flap is not available? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is the secondary option because we all know that the the lower abdomen is 
is the ideal place for for uh, donor site for breast reconstruction. So always deflap, always deflap. Even if patients have had liposuction, I'll offer them a deflap. You know, just taking as many perforators as possible and imaging beforehand. Um, but if they don't have adequate abdominal tissue uh, and they want reconstruction just with soft tissue, their own soft tissue, meaning that they're not willing to do kind of a hybrid reconstruction with like a deep and an implant. Then the SCAP is really nice. If you if you go back and you look at your CAT scans of patients that you have, uh, have operated on and mapped with CT angio, you'll see like the thickness of the abdominal wall. You may get, you know, two to three centimeters of, of, of subcutaneous uh, tissue. If you just scroll down a few more in, in the, in the uh, SCAP, um, perforated territory, we're talking four to six centimeters of, of thickness, right? So you get amazing projection. So you don't have to really cone that skin paddle to try and get projection. It's already there. In fact, sometimes it's too much. And I've actually had to thin out sure. uh, some of the S caps to try and get them to fit in. Uh, and and what I do now is um, is actually start recruiting superiorly. So in the, in the love handle area, the flanks, uh, to try and get some, some superior pole coverage because the SCAP skin paddle, you know, roughly is anywhere from eight to 10 centimeters in vertical height. You can get it fairly wide, you know, you know, 11, 12, 14 centimeters in width, depending on the patient's body habitus. But in order to, to um, fill the soft tissue envelope of a breast, you need more than 10 centimeters vertically, right? And so we, what we do is we actually, we don't bevel inferiorly because we don't want to hollow the buttock out, but we bevel superiorly and grab some of that lumbar fat. Uh, and all of that lights up and perfuses well. We always check with uh, with spy imaging. Um, so our, our incidence of fat necrosis is fairly low, but we get really nice superior pole coverage with that, uh, with you know an adequate skin panel. And then when you're designing your skin panel, are you doing it based off the perforator locations or is, do you do this like preoperatively with the patient standing or you just describe uh, how you make those markings? I always get a CAT scan. I always get a CT angio. And, and if I know that I'm going to do... Uh, an S gap, I'll have them do it prone. Um, so I can see it just conceptually in my, in my, in my brain, it's easier to map out uh, when I do those markings. So, you know, people always ask, well, how do you find the PSIS, right? So, so anatomically, you always see those pictures and, and what you do is you put your hands on the iliac crest and the superior pole of it, right? And then your thumbs kind of trace the iliac crest posteriorly. And as it goes and hits that sacral dimple, that's your PSIS. Okay. So that's marking one. Marking two is your greater trochanter, okay? So a line from the from the PSIS to the greater trochanter, about one third of that dif- distance is where the superior gluteal artery perforator exits the piriformis, okay? Uh, inferior to that, if you go from PSIS to the, to the ischial tuberosity, about one half of the way down there is where the inferior gluteal artery perforator comes out. I don't usually do that flat, but that's where you, that's the triangle that you're gonna have to anatomically draw out. So I always include, I always center the skin paddle over where I think the S gap is exiting the, per, the piriformis. Then I, I orient the skin paddle transversely uh, over the gluteus maximus uh, and then Doppler out as many perforators as I can. Usually you can find two or three. And the, the biggest knock against the S gap uh, for breast reconstruction is the pedicle is very short, right? So if you, and so it's, it's because it's got a fairly direct course through the muscle. So, you know, it's just like the lateral row perforators for, for, for D-flaps. It's pretty straight down, right? And, and it's a very short dissection. Well, it's the same thing with SCAT, right? It's, it's the medial perforator is very short because it goes pretty much straight up. But there are several lateral branches 
and there's one that runs between the gluteus maximus and the gluteus medius in an anatomic plane. If you can find that, you're loving it because you get about six to eight centimeters of pedicle length, which makes it a lot uh, more feasible to operate. And, and to be honest, it's it's not the the pedicle length that's the biggest issue with this operation. It's the the mismatch between the superior gluteal artery and the internal mammary artery. Because the SGA, if you don't dissect it far down enough, it, it's about a millimeter and a half at the at the most. If you if you go past this nexus of, of veins just deep to the piriformis, you'll get it to about two millimeters. And that's that's a pretty good size match. And actually I have a couple of slides where I'll show you like where it goes from one to one point five and then what I call the pain cave. We have to dissect through this plexus of veins, right? And they all just want to bleed. And then what usually hands up, ends up happening is everyone panics, right? Because you're in the pelvis almost. And so you don't want bleeding there. So everyone just starts clipping like crazy. And then <laughs> their, their, their superior gluteal artery is like one millimeter in diameter. And now you've got you to connect that to... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure you're, you're selling it yet. <laughs> if, if you're comfortable with that dissection. So most of the dissection is very straightforward up until the pain cave. There's a couple ways you can make that part of the dissection easier. So you retract. So it, uh, depending on where your dissection is, if it's through the gluteus maximus or through that intramuscular septum, you need to get maximum exposure. So you you know set up your retractors, your, your Wheatlander retractors as as deeply as possible. Some people will use a microscope to to get the right magnification and also but lighting, right? Um, and then you'd have to have one or two um, helpers kind of retracting. And then there's a plexus of veins that are crossing the artery. And you, you've got to identify which ones are going to your pedicle and which ones aren't, and then divide those and take them. Once you've done that, you'll, you'll see an area where your artery goes from like one to one and a half to two. And you just want to get to where it's about two millimeters and then take it there. And it just takes a little bit of familiarity with that dissection and just doing it a couple of times. And the, the other thing is, let's just say you don't get there. Well, your, your artery is about a millimeter, a millimeter and a half, and it's a big mismatch. And it's probably going to be too short too. So, you know, flip the patient over and just harvest the deep inferior epigastric pedicle, right? Um, and so that the, 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 the proximal end of that will match nicely with your mammaries. And the distal end, as it's going into the muscle, will match up nicely with with your S SGA. How often do you find that you need to take vein grafts or arterial grafts? Um, this, I did it for the first time last week. Okay. Yeah, so not, not often, because a lot of times I can get that lateral perforator and dissect it all the way out. And I, and I spend most of the time planning that out. Uh, and, and I've actually tried ultrasound. I'm not as good as like the Koreans and the Japanese at using those high resolution ultrasounds and finding those perforators and tracking them out. I mean, it ended up adding like an hour to the operation just using the ultrasound. So I think it was faster just to just not use it. But if you can doppler something reliably laterally within your 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 skin territory, it'll trace back to the superior gluteal artery. There's several studies where they looked at cats uh, cat scans and 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 uh, um, injection studies where if you're just kind of what I'd say to folks is if you look at your, your gluteal um, cleft and where your coccyx is, if you're above that line, you're going to be in the SGA territory. So any large perforator that you find is going to trace you back to the SGA. I had heard, I'd heard the term Medusa head before, but never pain cave. I think that's way cooler. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so for, for these, if you're doing a unilateral reconstruction, um, are you doing the dissection um, in the lateral decubitus position, or do you always go prone, or what's kind of your approach? 
um, if I'm doing unilateral, I'll do I'll go supine prone supine, and 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 that sounds like everyone's like, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. position changes, right? That's ridiculous. So I mean, you know, like to go. I would take our ORs like an hour though. I mean, I'm sure there's ways to do it efficiently. So I would love to hear kind of how you make that as efficient as possible. Oh, I don't know that we do it efficiently. I think it's just my tolerance is built up for it. But have two RR beds, two operating room beds in the room, right? Start off on one. And the thing is, the when you go, when you do the initial part of the operation where you're preparing the memories, just tell the anesthesiologist, arms will be, one arm will be out, one arm will be tucked. Um, let's just get them asleep. Let's get them prepped and draped. We're just going to drape out the the chest, right? And you just find your memories as fast as you can. And and that so that anesthesia time and and prepping and draping and that that section doesn't take nearly as long as you do for like a deep where you got to make sure you got to flex the bed and everything's and the draping's all complicated, right? So that goes pretty fast. And one pearl about um, when you're doing the dissection of the memories for S gaps is you know the S gap's going to be small. Right, or, or the supercooled artery is going to be small. The veins are usually about two and a half, so you'll be okay. But the artery is going to be small, so don't go for the third intercostal. Go for the fourth. You know, go a little lower. Like, be okay with having because you know you guys have done microsurgery enough. It's not the size of the vessels that matters; it's the mismatch. That's what makes it hard, right? Because if you have a controlled microsurgery where the vessels line up nicely and the size is lines up nicely, it's pretty straightforward. So go a little lower than you normally would. Certainly especially if you've got an inframammary fold incision. So start off supine, get your vessels out as fast as you can. Well, you know, take your time, do a good job. Get enough length. Uh, I pack it with moist laps, lidocaine neuropathy around the mammaries, and then I staple the skin closed and put an eye band in. Then we just flip onto the next bed. We just move the next bed right next to it, flip, get the first bed out of the way, jackknife them, okay? You got to... You, once you have them prone and in a Superman position, you want to jackknife them a little bit because in regular prone positioning, they'll have pads under their hips. And, and, and what it does is it kind of scrunches their butt, right? Scrunches their torso a bit. And that makes the dissection harder, right? Think about if you're trying to do a deep perforated dissection and the abdomen's scrunched, right? Everything's kind of caved in. So what you want to do is you want to open that space up so you put them in jackknife, okay? And that kind of opens up your gluteal space or your gluteal soft tissue. Then you do your 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 perforator dissect or your your SCAT dissection. Take it, you know, safely, and then um, um, once you've taken your flap, I put it on the back table, and then I have my team close the the, the donor site. Uh, we don't, you know, we just do, you know, three on four monocrills with one drain. We take them out of jackknife, so you can close it a lot more easily. And surprisingly, the patients who have SCAPs, gluteal flaps breast reconstruction have significantly less pain than deep flaps. And I was surprised. Like they're walking the next day. They have no issues. I mean, uh, the, their pain is is very minimal. Um, so while my team is closing the belly, I'm just getting the vessels prepared under the, uh, you know, under the microscope or on the back table with my loops. And then, you know, when they've got the, the gluteal donor site closed, then we flip them back onto the original bed, supine, small area, right? If I need the deep infraepigastric, Pedicle for some size will prep out the abdomen. You make a transverse incision, like in a low phantom region, just lateral over the rectus abdominis, open up the fascia, and then retract the muscle immediately. And you can see the pedicle dissected up. You could dissect out as low as you can to get the right vessel caliber, but you want to dissect up high enough so that the artery is small enough that it's a good match. Take that, 
then you can actually close the abdomen. You can give them a little bit of a tummy tuck if you want at the time or just just for their trouble. Flush your graft. Then you and then while while your other team is closing your abdomen, you're getting the vessels in the in the chest ready. So some people will suture the the um, deep pedicle to the S gap first, and then sew that to your mammaries. And then some people will sew the deep pedicle to the mammaries first, and then sew that to the S gap. The one advantage of sewing the gluteal perf the gluteal flap to the deep pedicle first is that you can position it any way you want, right? You can have the flap upside down, you can have it sideways, you can have it any way you want. You have complete control over that portion. And the reason you want to do that first is because your, your pedicle and your perforator are so short. So that make, make that part easy, flush it with hepsiline, make sure it flows really nicely, then dangle it and then hook it up to your mammaries. That's if you need it. Uh, and like I said, I mean, I did it for the first time last week. Uh, most of the time I can get, if I can get about six or seven centimeters on pedicle length, um, then I'll just, I'll do it without a graft. The one that you had to do the vein graft for, was it a, a medial perforator they had to take or was it just a shorter lateral one? It was a, it was a lateral. Uh, I don't know. So this one was interesting because we had, usually you'll get two or three good perforators. And I found a really fantastic lateral perforator and it, it on spy just didn't perfuse the flap well enough. So we chose the medial perforator and, and that's what happened, but it wasn't like super medial. I mean, we probably had about four to six centimeters of, of, um, of, of uh, pedicle length with the perforator, but it just, given the patient's body habitus and the thickness of the flap, it would have, it would have been too hard. And the other thing is that short vessel length, when the patient starts get, getting up and walking, we've had a couple patients where the attraction's a little bit on the nasomosis and they get venous congestion with to bring them back and revise the nasomosis. So you want to have a little bit of redundancy in the pedicle or the uh, nasomosis and the vessel length. And then you had mentioned your preference for S-gap over I-gap. Can you talk a little bit more about if you've ever tried an I-gap uh, it's probably, you know, you can probably get more superior pull fullness, you know, about with beveling with an S gap, but uh, kind of why is that preference? You know, you guys ever, ever have a couple bad experiences and you never do it again? Uh, yeah. Right? <laughs> so for most people, that's the S gap, right? And, you know, and for me, it was the I gap. We, we um, had a couple tough dissections. The vessel length was great, but it's not like, some people say that the eye gap um, pedicle tends to be a little bit bigger, the artery, but I think it's just a small, you know? Um, so you do get longer length of, of vessel dissection, but I don't think that you necessarily get better caliber. And the thing I don't like about the eye gap is if you objectively look at all the results, people are like, well, it's in this and that, it's in this, the gluteal cleft, it's, um, it's, it's anatomic, it, it looks really good, it looks natural. If you really look at objective, look at it, it looks like their butt's hanging off a cliff, right? What's left of it, right? Um, maybe edit that out. But it looks like there's like soft tissue <laughs> hanging over this cliff that's kind of retracted and stuck into the and people are like, well, you get a butt lift. When you're when you're removing tissue from below, you're not lifting anything, you're just pulling things down, right? That's what happens with a with a pap flap, right? When you do a pap flap scar, you're like, well, you get a little thigh lift. Actually, what you're doing is you're pulling the buttock down. And that scar keeps pulling down on that thigh, right? Because gravity always wins. And so I don't like the scar. I, I don't like the idea that I'm near the sciatic nerve. Um, and, and I don't think that people really have a lot of sciatic irritation because I think that was the case when they did 
inferior gluteal artery flaps with muscle. Like when you take muscle with it, then the sciatic nerve can be exposed. But if you're just doing a peripheral dissection, the muscle kind of closes back up over it. So I think there's less of that now that we become better with peripheral dissection. But I don't like the scar. I don't think that necessarily there's much more advantage to it. And I don't think it's necessarily technically easier. I also, the scar is hard to hide in most bikinis, I think, right, on the eye gap. Whereas my patients, they may have a little bit of hollowing in their upper hip and their upper buttock. But that scar is completely, it's completely invisible. And there are some people that don't want any scar at all. And there are some societies that are very scar averse, like in Asia. And so this is a pretty good um, scar location for them. I was just going to say, have you done any kind of uh, secondary fat grafting for any of the SCAP donor sites or anything like that? Yeah. So, you know, one of my friends, um, David Greenspun, makes fun of me because he's like, you're fat grafting your donor defect. Why not just take your your graft from, <laughs> yeah. take your flat from your, where, where you're dissecting, where you're getting the fat graft from? Because a lot of times what I'll do is I'll, I'll liposuction the, the, the love handles sometimes to to fill out the defect in the SCAP territory. And my answer is, is is that, well, they still don't have a scar like in their flanks that's visible, you know? So I may liposuction a bit and debulk some fat, but I'm filling in the area that that we're that we've taken it out from the upper hips and and the upper buttock. Um, but there's still no scar. So yeah, a lot of times patients will if we if we, they just do a unilateral SCAP, they'll ask us to uh, liposuction the contralateral buttock, take some skin out because they do what they do get is they do get a, a little bit of a butt lift, right? If you if you look at you know um, um, like a, a total body lift from the posterior aspect of it, the S gap while not not as good as a lumbar flap at removing all that excess, the S gap is kind of in that territory of what, where you would resect for a, a, a butt lift, and so they do get a little bit of a lift. So I do have some women that are unilaterals that have you know. Their butt crease is a little bit. Their butt crease is a little bit higher on that side, and they'll ask us to do the same resection on the other side. Maybe not take as much fat, but definitely take skin, and then use the fat from that side to inject on the contralateral side to kind of even out the contour. And I mean, they, and they they're pretty happy with it. And I'm just curious, what's your volume like for doing scap flaps? Like, is this something you're doing pretty frequently, or you know, how Maybe. often do you not need to do a deep, or you can't do? Uh, Deeps are more common, right? So yeah. um, uh, I'll probably do an SCAT once every two months, okay. once every three months, you know, uh, like this month we did two. Um, but yeah, it just depends on what patients come around. Interestingly, they seek you out, right? Patients will seek you out if you're doing them um, because they like the idea of not having any scars that are visible or, or they don't, you know, they don't have any, um, or they've been turned down for deep flaps. I do like them better than pat flaps. Um, because I, I think the scar location is better, and I think the fat quality and the fat thickness is better. I Man, how many times have you guys done a path lap? I mean, don't get me wrong, path laps are great. They're fast, they're easy, they're pretty straightforward dissection. You get a long pedicle, you get good vessel caliber, and you can do two surgeons at the same time, right? But the, you know, sometimes you just don't get enough fat, and you don't get enough fat thickness. And the thing I really like about the S gap is, is it's thick, and and you can cone it to get some shape. I learned that from Greenspun when he was doing with his lumbar perforator flaps, and actually I think he's coming to the course too as well. So hopefully you get a chance. He'll um, you get a chance to interview him, and then he can tell you how terrible the S caps are. Yeah, no, I uh, I've seen Dr. Greenspun do it at you know our oncologic reconstruction course too in St. Louis last year. He was uh, hyping it up, so I'm sure he'll do it again this year. And, uh, and that is a tough flap. Oh um, yeah, no, I. 
we have to convince our faculty at Duke to try one of those. We're just paps, uh, you know, which like you said, is a great dissection, but I've seen a lot of donor site problems from paps. They're trying to take too much and they all break down eventually. And, you know, you're still not getting enough. Well, Especially let's... with activity restrictions and things like that post-op, which it sounds like for the SCAP is uh, more limited if they're walking on post-op day one. And yeah, it's, it's pretty high up, you know? And so they're not sitting on it. They're pretty comfortable. They're walking the next day. Um, a lot of times, honestly, they feel like they're good to go on the second or third day and very, very limited. They may feel like a little tightness in their upper buttock, but that's about it. Not a lot of problems with seroma. I just leave one drain in. And, um, you know, it's really nice is when your chest and your belly hurts, like with a deep, like the, they don't have that so much with the S-gap. So it's just kind of what, you know, a little pain in the butt, you know, so to speak because of the S-gap. And then they have that one drain. It's a little annoying, but not nearly as bad as having to wear the binder and being flexed and, and all the activity limitations. So there are some upsides. It, to sum up, it is it is technically difficult, but once you do it enough times, you get comfortable with the anatomy, it, it becomes a lot more straightforward. And you just have to uh, accept that once you feel uncomfortable dissecting deeper, once you pass the piriformis and into the into the almost intrapelvic fat, that um, if you start to feel uncomfortable, just stop and then just take a graft. Well, let's shift gears a little bit in our last few minutes, talk about gluteal flaps in the context of pressure sores and also you know, lumbar spinal reconstruction. Um, so you'd mentioned at the beginning a little bit about coverage for pressure ulcers. Do you normally do this as a perforator flap or are you just doing it more as a, you know, kind of advancement flap or rotation flap? Um, I do it mostly as a rotation flap um, because you can re-advance it and it's pretty straightforward. I do Doppler out perforators every time. The other thing is I'm at a training institution. So, you know, I want to make sure that everyone can do this flap to, so they can take care of patients who have pressure sores in their community. Not everyone's going to be able to do a perforator dissection. Everyone can do a gluteal rotation flap. And, and, you know, it's pretty big. It's pretty broad. You Doppler out, you know, I teach them all where the perforators are. We go subfascial. I don't do uh, muscle and and fascia flap. I do fascia cutaneous flaps only, and we elevate the flap and we rotate and advance it to the sacral wounds, and then I actually drop it down for um, ischial pressure sores as well. We we do them that way because they're fairly straightforward, very easy to teach. You can readvance them. Now sometimes we'll do them as perforator flaps, and that's for very specific defects. So if you want to do it as a perforator flap, it'll be for something that is not necessarily like a sacral pressure sore, but somebody who has a pyelonidal cyst. And, and if, you know, you don't want to just rotate something in, you want to actually drive something in with no tension that just sits there and obliterates like the pyelonidal cyst defect, right? And, and it, it straddles because of the, you know, what happens when people get pyelonidal cyst uh, recurrences is because they still kind of have that divot where they're, they're you know, you don't talk, you guys have seen it, right? Where they still keep accumulating air and debris and it, it just gets infected and it keeps sinking down. Well, then in those situations, if you do like a rotation flap, you're just marginally making that better. But if you do like a, a perforated flap, you actually can almost obliterate that depression with that flap. Uh, and um, th those are the instances for the for the S-gap as a perforator. Other ones are if they have low lumbar defects that you can't get paraspinous flap to cover, or if the amount of soft tissue undermining is, is so extensive that you can't do keystone flaps, right? Then an, an S-gap perforator flap, you can actually elevate from way over by the trochanters, right? Bring that up and transpose it over um, to cover the lower lumbar defects. 
Cool. Are you typically having to rotate those in like a 180 degree fashion, like a propeller almost, or you can kind of just, once you get enough pedicle, you can just transpose it? My preference is to take it and then just kind of transpose it, just bring it closer to the, the origin through the piriformis. But a lot of times they just won't reach the lumb, lower lumbar region. So then you have to rotate it. If you're going to rotate it, what you have to do is you have to make sure there's no tension that that perforator is dissected all the way down. Uh, and then there's there's no compression of it by the muscle. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll just like take a little chunk of muscle out around the perforator uh, to make sure that there's no compression and then we'll rotate it in. And, you know, I spy the heck out of it just to make sure that with the rotation that we're not getting any type of vessel comp or, or skin pedal compromise. And you had mentioned in the case report that y'all published, I think last year on using an SCAP flap for lumbar reconstruction, getting a CTA preoperatively. Is that typically what you do to make sure there's a perforator there? You know, I don't, I don't even drive to the grocery store without my, my uh, navigation on. <laughs> so Fair enough. I, I'm certainly not going to do surgery on somebody without seeing whether they have uh, uh, the vasculature available because you, you, especially if somebody has been instrumented multiple times, right. Especially for spinal hardware, you have no idea what's gone on there and, or who's been there and done what type of reconstruction. So you want to see that your vessels that are, that are powering your flap are intact. Um, because you, you, I mean, I had been fooled by perforators that I thought I heard and, uh, they really weren't even there. That's a good point. It's so readily available. It's nice information to have. And, I think uh, we've tried ultrasound a couple of times in the OR and our experience was similar to yours. It added some time and I'm not sure much benefit. So, yeah. I think that the, the future will be in, in that type of imaging. We just, we have to incorporate that into our, our residency training programs yeah. uh, and we have to invest in the technology. And then you also mentioned in that case report that you were prepared to convert to a free flap. Is that something that you've done before for spinal reconstruction or just... Uh, in case it looked terrible on spy, I was prepared to transect it at a, at a, at a vessel caliber that I thought would be okay to do anastomosis and then even take vein graft to extend it uh, to try and get it to where I needed to go. So, because, you know, these are salvage operations where these folks don't have a ton of options. Um, so you do have to, you know, I always say a free flap is much less um, worrisome than a like an uh, like a perforator flap like a, a local flap because you're doing the anastomosis the inset is not under any tension it's nothing's twisted you don't have to worry too much about it because you you've optimized the situation for your anastomosis but when you're doing these flaps where you're lifting them and then rotating them around the perforator they're always a little bit more nerve-wracking they're faster but they're um they're a little bit more nerve-wracking so like we you know, monitor this patient almost like a free flap just to make sure that, they, that he didn't get venous congestion. If he did, we were going to, you know, take him back and try and de-inset and then, and then turn, convert it if necessary into a free flap. Luckily, we didn't have to. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I'm always, I've done a couple recently where I'm like looking at it every day. I'm like, this is looking a little more purple than the day before. And I'm much more anxious than a free flap. I just look at the bioptics on my phone. I'm like, it's doing great. So yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's definitely more nerve wracking. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm doing a, a reverse sural next week on a patient, um, and I would much rather do a free flap. Yeah. <laughs> well, we uh, like to end with a bonus question for all of our guest hosts. And so our question for you is, if you have any tips for residents, fellows, or even junior faculty 
for how to improve efficiency in the OR just for overall for micro cases. And we talked a little bit about kind of your flow for SCAP flaps, but even for deep flaps, how do you manage your team to be efficient in the operating room? I think um, communication, give everybody their job. Uh, you know, so this, you know, today your job is man dissection. Today your job is, you know, preferred dissection. We may exchange jobs during the course of the day, but this is what your job is today and this is your goal. So if you, if you allocate resources that you have and let everyone know what their defined goals and their learning objectives are, it proceeds pretty smoothly. Um, that way, um, everyone kind of is very focused on what they're doing. And then from an education standpoint, then everyone you know shifts jobs as they go along their residency and their training. Um, that's a very efficient way of teaching and also um, conducting the operation. Um, it, it, in microsurgery, I think um, we, when you're starting out, you, you don't really ever want to be too close to the perforator because you're really nervous you're going to damage the perforator. And that's when you damage the perforator. So I try and get folks to understand, like, you know, you want to see the perforator because you know exactly where it is and you don't have to worry that you're going to damage it because, you know, you're, you're staying away from, you're staying away from where the areas that are, that are critical. So what I've seen a lot of people do when they're first starting off is they just stay really, they're kind of just, they're like perforator adjacent, right? They're not, like I'm close enough. I know it's there, but and then that's where you can get in trouble. So my advice is, if you're doing a perforated dissection, visualize it the entire extent, so you're not surprised by it. You're not surprised by any branches. And then the the one thing that I don't see people use enough is I use a lot of lone stars, um, not the sharp ones because I always stick myself with them, but the dull ones. Use the lone stars and optimize your retraction continuously. Um, that that way you can see those branches that are coming off. Uh, and then, um, and then lighting. So if a resident comes with me, comes with me, and, and doesn't have a headlight on, I always say, well, you must not want to operate today, because <laughs> you don't want to see. Uh, because so lighting is extremely important, especially when you're just learning, because you don't really have a good, clear understanding of anatomy, and you need to see everything. I mean, I always have a headlight on too. And the last thing with microsurgery is, um, especially for anastomoses that are to the mammaries, right? So if you think about it, like when we do microsurgery on the hand, we put towels up, right? We put our hands on towels, but that's because the hand is elevated off the table, right? So we're just trying to become level with what we're operating, right? And what I see a lot of people do when they do microsurgery for deeps is they put towels up, thinking that that's going to help them. But actually, you're just taking, it's taking you away from the anastomosis, right? And you've seen people kind of make moves, and every time they rotate their wrist, they're pulling themselves out of the field. So what I tell people is get rid of those towels and get closer to the field. That's what you. That's why you have towels and hand surgery. So when you're doing mammary dissection, when you're doing mammary anastomosis, you want to get down and in, um, and be at the level of the anastomosis, so you're closer to it. So when you're making your maneuvers, you're not pulling up and out, which is you know for a radiated vessel that'll be a problem. So it it takes a little while for people to get get used to that, but then I make them do it so they get used to it. So finally, I think it, it has some utility. And then one last tidbit is take the time to make your setup the way it needs to be. Make sure you're orthogonal to your vessel um, direction. So if you're, you know, that the microscope is perpendicular to the way the vessels are lying. And so that way, when you rotate, you're, you're, when you're, when you're, using, you're doing your anastomosis, you're going along the length of the vessel and make sure that the, that the vessels are lined up perfectly uh, before you start your anastomosis. And then you'll go faster and you'll be more efficient than always trying to move in the microscope and changing positions and, you know, yeah. The setup is everything. 
Yeah, we've been uh, recently collecting our times for deep flops. And so it's something that I think our division has thought a lot about is, uh, you know, how to be efficient and where we can make up time and where we need to go slow. So I think those tips are helpful. I think the, the, the best that people worry too much about going fast, but they should just be worried about being very accurate in what they yeah. do every time. And that will lead to efficiency. Yeah. When you're trying to go fast, then you're rushing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your lecture at the flap course and uh, uh, seeing you there. Uh, are you going to be doing the dissection for gluteal flaps as well in lab? I'll do, be doing gluteal and then I think some lumbar in that group. And um, that's a hard flap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, um, I, I, so, you know, when I first started, uh, I actually went to visit someone to learn how to do lumbar flaps. And then I left and I said, I'm not doing that flat, man. I'm doing <laughs> flats. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, those are two challenging flats. But, I mean, for the patients, they're really good donor sites. But, um, yeah, we'll be, I'll be doing the gluteal flaps. And then um, um, we'll give, be giving a talk. But I'm looking really looking forward to the course. Um, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, well, wonderful. We look forward to seeing you there. Thanks very much. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.